Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the smoothest glass of Amarula for your mind, two crickets and a thorn tree. I'm half of your host, Mr. Nicholas Lorimer, as ever, joined by the other half of your hosts, Gabriel Krauser. And we have a very special episode today because we have a very special guest, legendary author, journalist, and musician, Mr. Brian Milan, who is joining us from the frozen desert of the South. Brian, how are you? Um, I'm very well, thank you. I'm just rather cold and dressed as a polar explorer a bit. Otherwise, well, thank know, you very much. I know the feeling. Um, uh, I think we've actually wanted to have you on the show for quite a long time, and uh, I'm very happy that we are having you on um, because I think that you are in many ways the perfect guest for Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree, uh, which is yeah, so just, South Africa's just, most eclectic podcast. <laughs> exactly. Dude, it's that remains to be seen. So. We are we just a reminder to our listeners, we call ourselves two crickets in a thorn tree because Helen Sussman described herself as one cricket in a thorn tree called Parliament is the only person calling for a real democracy back in the day. And as a former president of the Institute of Race Relations uh, and, a, and a grand classical liberal, we look up to Helen Sussman a lot. And we grow from two, one to two crickets, and today we grow from two to three. So there's a special edition of three crickets in a thorn tree. And at this rate, one day. Uh, South Africa might be a place of uh, both reason and quirk. We wanted to talk to Rian for a long time because his uh, book, My Traitor's Heart, is really one of the great things to have come out of South Africa. And I know that quite a few of our listeners have read that because they've told me. Um, but for those who haven't, it sort of, it's a... It's a, it's at once a snapshot of a moment in history, a particular man's life, a series of news stories. This journalist, this crime reporter decided to wake up every morning and go and figure out how and why South Africans kill each other. Uh, but it's also got that quality that great writing has of, of reaching across time and across space and finding something about the human condition, something undiscovered uh something uncovered and it's uh anyway that's one that's <laughs> that's one of the many reasons but but rian is uh a dude who has who's continued to push his maverick ways uh musician uh sometimes he makes very funny things sometimes he makes very sad songs when i lived in america i kind of found myself listening to his song about someone who has immigrated and feels completely miserable, uh, and uh, and and that song sort of manifest my state, uh, and and then I came back and I found myself listening to other songs about people who hear and feel completely miserable for very different reasons. <laughs> well, Anyways, the the immediate. Sorry, I just want sorry. to say the immediate reason that we asked Rihanna. Uh, this week is because he had a piece published in the New York Post, which I think has really put up its hand as one of the most dynamic uh, instruments of uh, contemporary journalism. It was fearless in reporting, for example, uh, issues relating to Hunter Biden, the current president's uh, son, at a time when the election was hot and a lot of newspapers thought that you mustn't report on anything that might be compromising. And they sort of reported the facts, 
drew attention to reasons yeah, to doubt it. and analysis, but they reported it. They the, also reported on the lab leak hypothesis. A lot of the social media um, companies actively thought that it was Russian disinformation, the Hunter Biden story at the time. <laughs> yeah. And so because it's Russian, you can't say it. On, on, on the first week of January, the New York Post uh, published a grand opus on the lab leak hypothesis. That's to say the hypothesis that accidentally those people doing research on bat coronaviruses and the like uh, might have uh, uh, had a security slip. The thing gets out, someone gets affected. This kind of thing has happened in the US. It's happened in the UK. And it's a story that had been covered by the Times, the London Times. It had been covered by uh, some one of the best French newspapers whose name I can't pronounce because French is ridiculous. But it hadn't really made it into the American mainstream. And the New York Post put that shit up. Sorry to swear. Anyway, uh, and 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 unfortunately, that happened at the same. You know, a few days later, two days later, uh, the White House was invaded, and so the story went away. And then it had to be resurrected uh, months later um, on another platform. But they but they're cutting edge, and they are I, one of the most widely read newspapers in America. Um, pretty sure their circulation numbers dwarf the usual suspects that we all know. So, yeah, I've checked that out. So. Um, I think it's a great thing that uh, South African uh, managed to to report to the world in a in a very dynamic and interesting platform on an interesting platform uh, what happened last week with the with the violent looting and pillaging and uh, all the death and destruction and that um, and that was Rian's piece so that's kind of the 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 launch point maybe Rian. Is just to is just to walk us through uh, the argument that you made there, uh, and uh, and then we'll and then we'll go forward. Let me just preface this by saying thank you very much for your kind remarks and for promoting me up the evolutionary scale and in the general direction. <laughs> and then yes, okay, the, the New York Post. So I'll tell you what happened to me in the aftermath of that. I had no idea what their circulation was, but then I suddenly started getting requests to remind me of my 15 minutes of fame a long, long time ago to go on American television and, and, re and repeat this argument. And this resulted in a series of catastrophic humiliations because they'd say these young guys are just coming. The hit's going to be at 4.15 East, Eastern Standard Time. And then the Zoom thing would, li would light up and then be, there'd be some like sort of really brash CIA agent is the one last night and and they'd asked me this question and it's a, it's a very cumbersome idea that I was that I was I was trying to lay out and and I'd start approaching it like sort of you know, back in high school towards a high jump and I I'd get I'd, I'd get like a third of the way towards the jump and he'd break in because I was taking too too long time and he kept on doing this to me and I and I lost more and more confidence and it in the end it turned into a complete disaster I was just sitting here like mumbling which is a tendency of mine <laughs> what I tried to say in this New York Post piece. Yeah, we got time here, so go ahead. Man. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. <laughs> Cut me off when I bore you. <laughs> I guess there's a, I, I took this. Sorry, this, the dogs are. Oi! <laughs> I can imagine not, this on American TV. Not <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's just perfect. It's not as good as the, the the video with the child walking in on the background. That that will never be topped. But this comes a close okay. second. Now we, now we, now we're going to get serious. So, 
Apparently, the situation in South Africa has nothing in common. I suggested in this piece that we have something in common with America. It's an idea, an idea that I chose to call the beautiful idea, which was born during the Enlightenment and refined over centuries in various revolutions, the American, the French, and then even the ill-fated ones of, of Lenin, Lenin and Mao. And the idea goes like this, that since all human beings are born equal with equal with equal amounts of gifts, all human outcomes should be exactly the same. In a just society, masters will be equal to slaves, and aristocrats and peasants will be equal. So that's that's the, the general idea. The, the converse of it is, if if there's any equality, say for example, between inequality between black and white Americans, this proves in itself it proves the survival of racism and in, in, injustice. And it's, to the extent that I've read CRT theorists in America, this is the absolute central idea, is, is the idea that that you you can't get them to talk about which policies in America that they feel are racist. If you, if you ask them, can you please explain to us, you know, white supremacists to keep tormenting you, can you, can you cite examples? You're told to shut up because in both cases it's racist and, and you're distressing people who are concerned about these things. You simply have to ex accept that the only explanation for disparities in, say, income and education between black and white Americans are attributable to racism, to systemic racism. And since it's hard to cite examples often, this is, the, the defenders have to resort to this idea that there's a sort of miasmic thing in, in the air that white people breathe and that it infects them and causes disease, disease in their brains that they might not even be aware that they're ill until this is pointed out to them by a, a skilled diversity counselor. So that's the first part of the idea. It's an idea that all people should be equal. Now, let's take that idea and we apply it to South Africa. In South Africa, in South Africa, we had a, we were supposed to, initially supposed to, when I was young, we were going to have a socialist revolution and equality and equity of outcomes were going to be enforced by commissars with machine guns. Unfortunately for the ANC, they came to power just as communism was collapsing and so they had to settle in for a form of neoliberalism. Um, and delay the revolution. But let's fast forward to 1999 when Becky made his famous two nations speech, speech or even a bit after. At that, at that, from that point onwards, is like Becky began, or the legislation passed by parliament began to sound American. We had the Employment Equity Act and we had concepts like affirmative action that enter, entered into our life. And I, I postulate the idea in, in this piece that at some point, you know, that the old revolutionary songs would be dusted off at ANC rallies and at ANC congresses, and you'd hear the Marxist-Leninist rhetoric, but at some time, the beautiful idea became like the sort of ideological load star of South Africa. This, this, this idea that con continued, and let's face it, huge disparities between black and white in this country were the consequence of racism, and the, their, mere persistence, their mere persistence proved that racism and white supremacy endured. Are you guys with me so far? Yeah, I follow. <laughs> okay. If that makes a degree of sense, then I then I proceeded to argue this. It's like in around about 2003, Thabo Mbeki, in the build-up to the 2005 World Cup, he, he let it be known that he was dissatisfied uh, by the sort of progress towards full racial representative, representativity being made by the Springbok rugby team. And he basically said, look, I want to see more black players on the field. And if that means losing, get used to it. So in other words, what he's saying, 
It was an amazing life. If I can just quickly jump in there, uh, Rian and I, we won't say his name, but we have a friend who uh, is sort of, uh, you might say in the upper echelons of the ANC, uh, at least closely associated with the revolutionary moment movement, black guy who was a great uh, Golden Lion supporter and a great Springbok supporter and speaks with an English accent. And he, I remember him being profoundly miffed. He started swearing in high British. This bloody ridiculous man wants us to lose. Just so that, this is what kind of president is this? Anyway. Well, Yes, so, but we we he, Becky seemed to be saying it was it was a question of equity over honest. It was the single most important thing. Failure was acceptable if it occurred in pursuit of this holy grail of of absolute equi equity of outcome in, in in everything. I think if we proceed from there, this is uh, here I have before me. Um, I'm showing these guys a picture of it on the on the on the Zoom thing. A copy of Anthea Jeffrey's book about BE helping or hurting. So let me see if I can summarize the contents. In, I'm, in, in, I'm also holding it up. Uh, Rian writes a great introduction to the book. In mine is out of reach, so I can't show off and also hold mine up. <laughs> Not that our listeners could see anyway. Well, anyway, as, as, as I read this book, it, it reminded me of a, of a science fiction story I once read in a world in which absolute equality was enforced, where beautiful people had to wear masks so that they didn't have advantages over people who didn't look beautiful. And intelligent people had to take had to take sort of mind-numbing drugs so that they, they didn't display their er erudition. And, uh, and, and athletic people had to wear weights, weights, weights around their, their wrists and ankles in order to sl slow them down. <laughs> What Nathia basically argues, I'd say, is, is that you know that, that this idea of equity began to strangle South Africa in, in due course, as, as we know. And Becky's reforms and Becky's ideas like worked pretty well until 2007, but as time went by, and instead of like appearing, the equity gap began to grow. The application of these these laws grew more formidable, as as did the. Let's say just the, the news began to tighten around businesses' uh, neck. I don't want. We're in, we're in South Africa. We all know what BEE was. It, uh, the apogee possibly came in the mineral, the, the mining act of, of 2012, which eventually suggested that the intention of the draft of the draft of that law that she described is, is, is that anyone considering invent, investing a, a few billion dollars in, in mineral exploration and sinking exploratory mine shafts, which cost billions of dollars. That they would have to see cede somewhere between 30 to 50 percent of their ownership to the government free and they'd also have to accept that they they had to accept if the government eventually decided to buy them out the price would be dictated by by politicians so we became in due course we became a country that was completely insane to make any investment and the consequences as we know would would were, were completely Especially for the poorest people in this country, were, de were, were devastating. In every index, we began to slide backwards, and the and and the most important index of of all, affirmative action, rose up. So, but that's a diatribe about. This is actually a discussion about values. Yeah. Because I began to think, okay, let's take the context away from racial problems. Let's just like look at China. The most significant thing that has happened in my life is that in the course of 40 years, China went from being a miserable communist shithole where there's too little food to eat to a world power 
know, this country that that somehow it managed to completely alter the balance of powers in the world to, to, to give the imperialists a bloody nose to catapult hundreds of millions of people into the middle class. And the essential thing lying at the core of this Chinese revolution that's changed the world was this idea of meritocracy. That's where Dong Xiaoping began. Yes, he went down to the collective farm and said, comrades, we've done you, we've done you wrong. We're going to set you free. You, you will now be allowed to work for yourselves. And if this guy works harder than that guy, he's going to be entitled to keep the money. In other words, it was going to be a meritocracy. And if you embrace meritocracy, you're also going to embrace a degree of inequality of outcome. Let's turn now against that backdrop that the single most important thing that's happened in my, my life was driven by that, by the simple idea called meritocracy. What does critical race theory in America have to say about meritocracy, especially this Robin D'Angelo woman? Hey! And Ibrahim X, 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 X Kennedy. Is like, for, for these people to, to talk about concepts like the Protestant work ethic is, is laughable. D'Angelo says basically, you know, you should never, you know, you can't really, you know, it's it's, it's fascist to ex expect people to come to work on time and to and, and, and to and to work hard. Ken, if you, Kendi has has written several several books about this concept of what the root causes of. He says, American policies are racist. But when you ask him what policies he has in mind, he falls back from, and he basically doesn't want to be drawn on that thing because because those those laws have essentially ceased to exist. But anyway, it's for the Asian students that don't get the. Okay. Can yeah, I can I hop in here? Bullied in, in Harvard. Let me, just, let me just finish this idea because my, my mind is yeah. as older as was wondering. I guess this thing, this, this thing is with with with, with meritocracy. It's like you know that standardized tests are a. Uh, Hmm. Or sort of put to like sort of make Americans' lives principal and, and meritocracy is absolutely sort of outlawed. The spirit of those laws of CRT, the same spirit occurs in, in South Africa. And so sort of basically like the absence of in, any value other than victimhood is that we are we are victims and therefore we're, we're entitled to reparation. And there's absolutely no any further discussion of anything that might make a human society work successfully yeah. Yeah. okay now you guys begin to understand why i had this trouble with it with the american guys three minutes <laughs> yeah, cable, yeah, no, cable news is not very good for thoughtful discussions that you really explore a topic that's complicated <laughs> yeah no, man. and that's part of part of the nightmare is the the kind of short attention span so i think that when i read your piece it took me back to a time in my life that I've managed to, I think, almost not at all discuss um, on this on two crickets, even though we do a podcast a week and have done so for a couple of years, I think, which is my um, my thesis. At university, we were obliged before graduation to write a, a thesis, something you know something trying to be serious, something trying to be adult. And I was 21, 22. I was pretty crazy directing plays. I was running multiple affairs and smoking joints every night and going to EDM parties in New York on the weekends. And 
uh, you know, having the odd MDMA pull. I, I really was, I was not like a, a hard-minded, focused dude. And yet I was sitting in America's top-ranked university. I was privileged enough to have uh, one of the brightest logicians in America who'd newly come there be appointed as my senior thesis advisor. And I was surrounded by these texts that seemed to be great, that were great. And, and in that environment, I thought, well, why not shoot for greatness? Why not shoot for something that's like profound? And in the end, I kind of found myself arguing the following point. Personal identity theory is canonical. There is basically in every American university at least one class and usually a couple, some for undergrads, some for graduate students in the philosophy departments about the following question. What is a human being? What is a person? And there are different theories. You know, some people think that you're a psychology, you're a psyche. And other people think you're just your brain and your body. And religious people think that you're a soul that's immortal and that precedes birth and survives death. And I kind of went for the theory and, and they've all got their problems and they're these classical philosophical games you play of what happens if you have all of the atoms in your body recorded by a computer scan and then copied somewhere else. Now there's two of you and they look the same. They talk the same. They've got the same memories. They've got the same attitudes. They both think that they are the same person, but now there's two. One can't become two. This is a basic kind of principle. So what do you make of that? And each one of those theories, the psychological continuum theory, the animalist theory, the soul theory, they all have their own versions of how to come down on the problem of fission, the problem of fusion, these sort of uh, thought experiment games that philosophers like to play because it's kind of cheap. But it might be interesting. It might actually be useful. What I found was that it wasn't useful. I was struck by the fact that a review, a survey had been done for the first time in history of what most philosophers think. Like the Institute of Race Relations does these surveys and it's kind of interesting what we find that like most South Africans think completely differently to the headlines. Someone, David Chalmers, went out and did a review of most academics and of all 27 questions or whatever he asked, like the most clear frustration with the current available canonical thought was in personal identity, identity theory. Most professors and graduate students clearly thought that like whatever people had been talking about for the last 70 years, none of it really makes sense. No one's got the right answer. And the thought that I had, and this was not an original thought, this came from Mark Johnson, who's an Australian professor there, was that basically we think we're one thing when we're actually two. And the two things that we are are defined like this. The one is a moral target and the other is an agent. So the qualities of a moral target are that it's the kind of thing you should care about, it's the kind of thing that can suffer pleasure and pain, it's the kind of thing that might have projects worth respecting and an agent is something that can do things. It can cogitate, it can act, it can collaborate, it can make judgments, it can perform crimes, it can build. 
And these things mostly go together. Most of the time we're both. But when we are asleep, our agency seems to go vacant. When we're in a coma, our agency clearly goes vacant. If you suffer Alzheimer's or some mentally debilitating thing, the common sense thought is you're still a moral target. You, Someone who's got Alzheimer's should be protected by the law. A child that's two years old that isn't able to work or vote or think very clearly or a child that's six months old is still a moral target. There's, there's our sense of morality. We have a duty to really care about that child, to stop it from going hungry, to stop it from being attacked. But it's not the same as the agent. So mostly agency and 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 moral weight go together but sometimes in life they come apart and this thought that we're a bit of both but that they're not equal was like completely alien like i i then spoke to professors who are literally top of the field in america and they were like wow i guess we haven't really dealt with that at all in this field <laughs> but where people have dealt with it is in politics and oddly enough the first uh, political analyst that i saw to really spend chapters and chapters on this distinction was dinesh d'souza through a book that rian had recommended to me now dinesh d'souza has disgraced himself in various ways some of them personal some of them political but he wrote a book back in the day decades ago called the end of racism which is just an astonishing work because he dared to envision, envisage what the world would look like if racism was over, and then to say which parts of the world meet those criteria and which don't. And I think our racism is not the problem campaign's a little bit like that. But anyway, he was serious about the point that I'm trying to bring to a close here, which is that when Rian says there's this beautiful idea that we are all made equal, He's speaking to an idea that is beautiful, that is an Enlightenment idea, that's reflected in the opening lines of the American Bill of Rights. We hold these truths to be self-evident, right? We are all equal. We clearly are all equal in some sense. In what sense? In the sense that as moral targets, we are all equal. That the law should treat us equally. That the law, that, that no one should be allowed to be killed for a reason that doesn't apply to someone else, for example. That no one should be allowed to be deprived for a reason that doesn't apply to someone else, for example. But we're clearly all different in another way. And all of the difference sits on the agency side, on what we think and do and choose. And all of the equivalence sits on the moral target side. And I think that the beautiful idea is true on the moral target side, and that the nightmare that's happened is that this enlightenment insight, which really is also an insight that came before the enlightenment, that was held by all religions. All of those religions sort of hold that in a certain sense, every human being has the spark of the divine in them. There's some sense in which we're all equal. That idea bled from tracking us in the passive voice, something done to me, to the active voice, what. I do. There's just, there's the, the difference between the, the target and the agent is as basic as the difference between me and I. Me is always to me. I is what I do. And on the I side, we're all unique. 
on the on the me side we're all the same and i think that if we keep that i think that if we keep that distinction in mind then we can hold on to what's beautiful about the beautiful idea and get rid of what's poisonous about it and in practical application that means equality before the law not seeking equality of outcomes okay good gabriel Lecture on the on the okay, philosophy of identity. I just want to apply it to a very simple practical situation. About I'm going to describe a situation to you, and you tell me how your philosophical analysis. Let's take for example one of the things I said in the New York Post piece is is, is that it seems to me. The black people are required to bring nothing to this party except except their blackness. Otherwise, they're entitled to every, every they, they're they're entitled to whatever's going to heal their wounds and make them equal. So now let's, let's come back to South Africa. Let's look at the education crisis. About ten years ago, we all know about the education crisis. That, that this, our schools are essentially bordering on on dysfunctional, and they're producing graduates who are Sometimes right, so sort of holding pens. Function, functioning gratitude. What is the reason for this? About ten years ago, somebody does a survey and they discover that um, teachers in black schools, in, in the dysfunctional schools, are being paid to work eight hours a day, but they're only working three point five. One of the consequences is they're trampling on the dreams of millions of of, of young young black children. This is clearly leads eventually to this abandoned, this desperate quest on the part of parents in a place like Soweto to get their children the hell out of the state schools and put them into those private schools downtown. But this is about the values that underpin the society. Why did that revelation not lead to absolute outrage? Why didn't it lead to people in government in old-fashioned stone like Jesus, like invading the temple, like sort of going to schools with, with shambox and like sort of changing the situation? Instead, just like sort of tolerated. This is like an outbreak of something that, I mean, I, obvious, there are obvious political explanations. The statue is a very powerful union. But somehow, there was no sign on the part of South Africa's government that they were willing to act. Let me use an Afrikaans word in, in a crocodile of a way that they were prepared to like sort of behave in a way that, uh, that Robin D'Angelo tells us is, is acceptable. They, either they were going to crack the whip of the black people like slave masters of yore and tell them exactly what to do. And they, they declined to do so. We, this, we see the same thing every day in municipalities where the streets are full of sewage and the water doesn't work and people are outraged and they're protesting and, and, and they're burning tires. And well, the municipal budget has, be, has, has been looted. And, and once again, there doesn't seem to be any like, sort of willingness on the part of, this, of, of, of the government to enforce the sort of values, old-fashioned Victorian values that Dong Xiaoping seems to have at least implicitly sort of advances, is, is that... The, the things that make a society work are discipline, diligence, honor, honor. What about honor? Just about honor. This is, you know, this is a sacred trust in the trust, public trust placed in your, in your hands, and you abuse it ceaselessly, and there's, there's somehow no comeback for you. Corruption is tolerated. Nobody ever goes to jail. The situation doesn't get fixed. I guess the possible, I would say, does that is that is that related to is is that is that Related to the shortcomings in critical race theory, that, that this value-free, that all there is, all that all that all the theorists bring to the thing is shame. 
Sorry. I, so, so Nick, I know I'm I'm jumping here twice, but I think that the I I I try and make the argument sometimes that critical race theory is just a new label on an old rabbit dog. And and part of the reason for that is that I think the ideas that have gotten in the way of the kinds of reforms that you're talking about have are ideas that I see across continents and across time. And I and I do you know I'm I'm I, I'm concerned about like trying to bring this all back to one idea, but I do think that there's something to be said for the pose that we take in life that all of us take now and then when we lean back, when we allow experience to be the defining feature of our lives. So when I've had a long day work, long day's work, I find myself increasingly incapable of reading engaging kind of hard literature. When I was a younger man, if I was like tired and alone, I'd read like a heavy Russian poem or a bit of philosophy where you kind of have to crank the noggin. And then I'd start reading like detective novels. And now I just want to turn on the TV and watch a British show called Tipping Point where like working class Brits get asked basic uh, quiz questions. And if they get it right, they get a drop a coin down the thing and it takes five minutes for the coin to drop. And it's like, my brain doesn't have to do any work, but I'm experiencing. And the same thing, I, you know, I remember as a kid, and this keeps coming back to me when I go on holiday, this thought of like, what is bliss? What is utopia? What does heaven on earth look like? And I've, the first time I saw it was in like some crass American movie where there was some guy on a beach in a hammock surrounded by almost naked women fanning him with palm fronds and feeding him pina colada. Like he didn't even have to move his hand. They're putting the straw in his mouth, right? <laughs> There's a certain state of bliss which has to do with achieving zero agency. You're not doing anything. You're just experiencing. You're not putting out. You're just taking in. And I think that we all respect that that matters, that it matters to sometimes in life be in a place where you don't have to do anything. Someone's just taking care of you. So, but what is what is? But the, I I think that has become like an object of almost cultish and esoteric worship, and that this worship gets manifest in politics when you say effectively that these kids are not being properly educated and these teachers are not doing their job. But that's not what matters. What they do, their skills, their work—that's not what matters. What matters is what they experience. And as long as people can still experience the sunset and sit in the open felt of some bucolic dream or in the park or as then it's okay. Then that's really what matters. And when you think experientially, it's not all bliss. That kind of thing gets corrupted. That's the target. The target is to set up a society where no one has to do anything, but everyone is kind of being fed and enjoying themselves passively. And the corruption of that is no one is doing anything, but they're miserable. 
And I think that's kind of what South Africa has managed to produce in a way, more than most other countries, certainly more than any other country I can think of that has the basic kind of structures that we've had. We've become workless. We've become agentless. We've become a place where lots of people spend lots of time not doing something, but just taking it in. And I think that the evidence, that as a fact, if it is a fact, and I think it is, is a reflection of the ideology that's been pushing us. That ideologically we're committed to a do-nothing universe. And and do-nothing is a, is a political slogan. Know-nothing is a different thing. I don't think we're in a know-nothing universe. I think we're in a... I think we're in a political space, and I think CRT is much the same. I think it's got the same basic cultish force, that it doesn't see heaven on earth as being the neighbor who picks up the donkey to save their other neighbor's life savings or someone who invents a new medicine that saves the world, someone who works very hard to send a rocket into space. That stuff's all laughable. These billionaires trying so hard working so hard it's like kind of pathetic yeah, we've, we've seen that a lot over the last week on social media Lots of heaven on like, earth oh, is just doing nothing waste. yeah yeah i i, I like sorry sure, go, no, ahead. go ahead Ryan. are you first no i'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying I've, I, it looks to me like I've got, I've got a considerably lower iq than you guys because i'm trying to figure out what the practical application is <laughs> to <laughs> Problem of teachers teach for only three and a half hours a day, thereby trampling the dreams of children, black children. No, dude, it's a nightmare. Yeah. You, 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 no, dude, that is the nightmare. The nightmare is that somehow we have all seen that, and this country has not, like, yeah. So I think, I think, and I think that's thrown that's rocks what, through the yeah. So, so I think there's, I think there's two things. I like, I really like this idea of the do nothing universe, and I see. I think this has become a really dominant idea amongst um, particularly on the left across the world but not only and that is that we there's no real value in work uh, we're all just here to be fed basically and uh, the perfect universe and you often see this from kind of layabout lefty hippies who like to criticize capitalism a lot is that work itself is like some kind of horrific imposition on a human being rather than an uplifting thing that helps define your character and like gives you purpose in life and all that sort of thing. I see that as, as, as just evil. So I do agree that there's been a, I think it's, it's happened at an elite level, but it's also filtered down to, 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 you know, uh, I think also other places like possibly our schools to suggest that, you know, there's, why should anyone work as long as you're getting paid? as long as you can survive. Um, I think there's also been, and I see this uh, from this, from similar quarters, a fetishization of a kind of hopelessness and despair. Um, so I don't know, I've, I've gone through periods of my life where I was very depressed and I think <laughs> that is very tempting. <laughs> yes, yes, this is, <laughs> these things are not unrelated. Um, <laughs> so, in in those periods, I think when one is very depressed, you're, you're, there's there's actually a certain sort of sick pleasure that you gain from wallowing in your misery, and I think that that has become culturally very fashionable, and uh, across a lot of layers of society, a sort of embracing of hopelessness and victim and victimology and all these kind of things, and it feeds in together to create societies where people firstly don't feel the need to work because they, as Rian said, there's like no honour. 
but also um, that other people see that and say, well, you know, they're just, you must understand we're all just these horrible victims oppressed by the universe. And, and I think that's all very much paid into it. I, and, and Rihanna, I think there has been outrage, but just not from our rulers who are inf infected by these uh, horrid, yeah, by, by these horrid ideas. But you, but you, it's it's also I think it's the oppressive side of critical race theory that brooks no, no tolerance or even argue back. You, your position is you either take the knee, you either take the knee or you join them. That there's there's nothing in between. If you argue back at all, and there's there's, there's huge arguments. I mean, I dare say that you guys are both familiar with Thomas Sowell, the great Black American uh, conservative, and his his many his many progeny. Most recently, John John McWhorter. This, who are reviled universally as uh, just considering what the consequences of what I'm about to say is, as as coconuts or sellouts or house, and I that word, yeah, yeah. But you can't. This is like the, any, this. I think that the African Renaissance, for including for the African diaspora. It's an idea that Dinesh D'Souza finds the single most damaging th thing for them is not necessarily the legacy, the huge legacy of, of, of racial oppression and slavery that we haven't discussed yet. It's actually this idea of victim, victim, of, of, of victim, this idea, this idea of victimhood and the and, and the psychic de debilitation that it causes and absolute hopelessness. So, I, I, so the African Renaissance is only going to begin. It cannot begin until such uh, until such time as as black people everywhere, including our government, including the people who presided over this fiasco in education, look at themselves and cease behaving as victims and expecting outside agencies to, to solve problems for them, or that, that it's enough simply to excuse your behaviour by saying that this I'm crippled by the legacy of apartheid and colonialism, slavery and neocolonialism and a World Bank policy, and so forth. Say I shall no longer do this. I will take a stand now. I want teachers to teach for eight hours a day. That's what I, a South African taxpayer, am paying them for. I don't have children who go, who go to school, but it's what they owe to the body politic. It's what they owe to the children. And the essence, I feel that ERT basically Honest, just provides. Honestly, in South Africa, I think we've seen that there are millions and millions of South Africans who do feel that way, who have been sitting on the sidelines up until now. But... They are outraged by the fact that teachers are not teaching their kids properly. And they are outraged by the wanton lawlessness and layabouts and the people who are willing to go and steal TVs out of, out of malls. And for various reasons, and I think a lot of them are to do with the fact that the government has been really skilled at manipulating South Africans into, you know, fearing racial boogeyman, boogeymen and that kind of thing, um, that those people have just stood on the sides. But I think that the great thing that happened this week uh, or last week, rather, um, was that those people actually came out of the shadows and said enough is enough. And they, you know, protected shops and recovered stolen goods and cleaned up shopping centers and all that kind of good stuff. Well, as I observed in this New York Post piece towards the end, I was listening to SAFM, which is there are very few people where I live, and very few black people. But the black voices that I heard on 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 the radio were all, all seemed to, all, all seemed to be clamouring to live in a society where outcomes would when outcomes human outcomes were determined not by the 
color of your skin, but by the content of your character, which, as I say, is, is a message that Martin Luther King would have understood, but Ibrahim X. Kendi would not understand because <laughs> that basically, I mean, it's in the iron. It's just, you know, there's black people in, 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 a, in a black country saying that we're not going to tolerate government anymore by people who are riddled with sloth and incompetence and don't really seem to care about us and keep on promising us as this as the country deteriorates and everyone's situation deteriorates as all that becomes louder at the denunciations of white supremacy and whiteness in whatever form it takes hmm. it, it, it if, makes any form of progress impossible it, it, it dooms us to so points about progress and, and about rian's uh sort of grounding this in children I think that is an interesting thing. If, so if you if you look at how societies, if you just look at how individuals work, the old platonic game of like, let's think about the individual life story and map that onto a sort of societal life story and, and vice versa, see if we find any insights there. I I remember being a you know a poor kid who couldn't afford whose 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 mom couldn't afford to send him to a private school being at a scholarship at a private school and being amongst you know billionaires children's at a fancy university and knowing that i start at a very different place to where some of my peers start out in terms of the mistakes that i can't afford to make that they can afford to make and in terms of like even if i do the best that i can do i can only get so far if they do half as much as that they can get twice as far because they'll start out with more capital, more people to, you know, uh, you, uh, I, I was talking with, uh, uh, Nick and I were talking with our, car, our, our colleague, Sarah Gon, who's a lawyer, about uh, what it is like a, a few decades ago before computers and the like, that you had to be quite high up to have a someone take down your dictation. You know, there's a kind of writing that you can presumably only do if you're saying it out loud. You've got a real living human being there to take your dictation, you kind of need to have the money to back you. So one idea is, insofar as you care about agency, the question is, how far do you get? And I think that insofar as D'Angelo and Kendi and company care about agency, that's what they care about. Like, what's the ultimate outcome that you can achieve? But the, and, and then they see that it can't be the same. You just can't reasonably expect someone who starts out with nothing to get to the same point in terms of material comfort as someone who starts out as a billionaire uh, heiress. But there's a different set of values and a set of values that has much more to do with honor. And I saw this at Saints and I saw this at Princeton. There was no honor to being the rich kid who was easy come, easy go. The honor was, given the cards you've been dealt, how well do you play your hand? Given where you started on the ladder, how high do you climb up? And I think that that idea, not so much of the outcome that you get to, but the difference, the space between input and response. Sometimes people say that's the only space there is for thought, but it's also the only space there is for doing, right? That is what your life amounts to, that that difference between what you were given and what you made out of it is, is really a source of agential value. And poor people whose, whose, whose goal is to work flipping hard at laying bricks so that their children can get a good enough education so that they can be accountants so that their children in turn can buy some stocks, be lawyers or professionals and doctors so that their children can be grand uh, whatevers. That, that idea of like, don't, 
that idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That idea, the curious thing about that idea is when you look at it from the end point, from the heiress's point, all of the families that I know that are like that, that have the story of intergenerational wealth accu accu accumulation, they all have the utmost respect for the one who kicked it off. Not the one who made the most money. The guy who started with a billion and managed to turn it into two billion made a whole billion. But the guy who started with 10 and managed to make a thousand, he only made 990. But that's the guy that everyone in the family respects. Granny or grandpa. In my family, it's absolutely like that. There's a photo in my mom's uh, passageway of my gran staying in front of her house. I didn't even notice it. My uncle pointed out. He said, you notice that it's corrugated tin. The wall was not made out of bricks. She was living in what you would call a shack. But my granny worked her bones dry, selling, you know, doing doing a kind of very low-skilled kind of labor. And it was very respectable. Perfume, exactly. Yeah. And 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 in my family, we've got lots of people. We've got professionals, lawyers, and business people, and artists. There's no one we have more respect for than my granny because of where, because of what she made, how much more she made of how little she had to start out with. And I think that's very normal. I think it's very human. And I think it's also intellectually robust in the sense that in terms of values, which is kind of what Rian asked us to talk about, there's surely one of the ultra, one of the ultimate human values is not how much you make, but how much you make out of what you started with. And that's a story that puts Africa and, and black people and particularly South Africa in such a wonderful position because we seem to have a kind of low base. We've got low skills, low employment, not a lot and, of accumulated and, stuff, but enough infrastructure and, and whatever that we could. Right. And, and crucially, we're not, we're not shackled by a lot of the decadence that Gabriel and I were complaining to, to each other the other day. We think that the West has become sick with a kind of, and I can't think of a different word, but decadent seems to be the right one. Um, and that you can see like the little green shoots of Africa here and there popping up that could make it, you know, even greater than Asia is now. Yeah. The Rags and Riches story is so much better than the rich than the rich kid who took drugs and then collapsed into nothing. <laughs> no, no, this is not. I mean, I, I went once. I once spent half an hour on Twitter and set up a handle, just dead white man. I think that we, you know, in, in this discussion, <laughs> we're likely, Are you doxing? Ryan just doxed himself. We're let's uh, we stand here in the shadow of Dong Xiaoping. Why can't we? Are we so incapable of learning from? I mean, we're a left-wing country. Our politics of it, the government, politics of the government, etc., are pretty orthodox, orthodox left-wing. Theoretically, at least, Dong Xiaoping should be. How, why are we so incapable of learning from the lesson of China? It didn't get bad enough, dude. Dong D Deng Xiaoping could only take <laughs> over after Mao Zedong completely. He com yeah, he had to completely destroy the country first. Um, and that's our mission, right? Our mission is to seek out the bottom. We're like we praise do nothingness, so we we figure out whether that's gonna whether technological revolution is gonna bring us to a position where we can all plug ourselves into the matrix, have computers do all the work, and we'll enjoy the goodies. Or that's the good version. The bad version is we just get like more and more crap and disintegrated and failed state and hungry people that are too 
actually to at a point you get too hungry to do anything you get too mentally stunted to do anything you sit under the tree and you wait for someone to throw you an apple and that's that's all there is to it i mean i see that when i drive past some people at the at the traffic light some beggars are hopping between this uh part of the junction and that part of the junction to try and make something out of it other beggars are like have been incapacitated and and Mao's project in some ways was to incapacitate thought, meritocratic work, all kinds of distinction. And only once he had found the proverbial bottom could that country bounce. And I think that that's the, that's the sort of law of unintended consequences. Here, our ruling elite seems dedicated to, to find the bottom of, of experience. Well, that's such a pity. So we take an egg and, and drop it, and we expect it to bounce. And here, here we are doing it after after all the lessons that history, the history of post-colonial Africa has offered us. We are going to look. I think it's I think it's also worth saying that I mean a lot of our ruling elite in the ANC really still thinks that the Soviet Union was a great success. So you know they're not even necessarily on the same page yet. They they think that Dao Deng Xiaoping power. <laughs> uh, you know who I'm talking about. The one Rian was just talking about, Den Xiaoping. Den Xiaoping. Den Xiaoping. Yeah, they think he was great revolutionary and stuff, but you know, maybe probably more because he he crushed Tiananmen Square rather than because he right. reformed China with with free market stuff. So I think uh, there's at least part of our our ruling class who are still still in 1960. You know, the 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 shadow of the Soviet Union casts a very long long one, um, and. As for our more, shall we say, modern ruling class, they are far more interested in sending their kids overseas to get American degrees and making an enormous amount of money off of tenders at the moment. Than, uh, maybe I, maybe I can switch gears here because I think that there's another kind of distinction, which is between practical wisdom and intellectual wisdom. And this is sort of what Nicholas is talking about, right? Like there's a kind of intellectual acumen. There's a kind of familiarity with facts that one can't possibly know by lived experience. No one in South Africa, not no one, but almost no one in South Africa knows what it was like to be in Moscow in the 1960s or in Mao's China or in Deng's uh, revolution. You, you you only gain access to those facts by reading and listening and so on, intellectual practices. So I think that one of the things that shined up from last week, as Rian alluded to, we've got these ideological projects of the beautiful idea of engendering, of socially engineering in e equality of outcomes, maybe secretly praying at the altar of experience rather than agency, uh, producing such materially defunct conditions that so many people just think it suddenly makes sense to, to go and steal with a little bit of prompting and burn and sadistically pillage. And so that's the setup. And then the consequence in a way is a lot of practical wisdom. South Africans get together, they clean the mess, they band together to barricade their communities. They welcome chaps like Gigi Alcock, who Rian and I know, into Soweto. There's no, you know, Gigi's like, there was no racial tension here. Guys were so happy that I was there to, to help out, like defend the mall from being looted. We get very practical for a moment. And even our 
uh, our glorious editor of the largest uh, 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 distribution-wise publication in South Africa, Adrian Basson, starts saying things like racism is not the problem, uh, <laughs> looting is. Uh, so it's like the it's like the IQ seems to lift, and yet on Friday, on Friday, the ad hoc committee to slash the constitution publishes its new draft bill to change the constitution and it doesn't just keep expropriation without compensation to chase away investors and so make it even harder for poor black people especially to find jobs that don't have they add to expropriation without compensation the custodianship clause which is even more terrifying because the way custodianship works in terms of mining like court process or circumvents or the court process in a strange way. So it's like we've gone in the opposite direction in terms of the law. This is as far away from cleaning up litter as you can be. This is the law. This is like paper and pen and thinking. And this is like uh, the intellectual side. We haven't gotten more wise. We've gotten less wise. And then a few days thereafter, in fact, just an hour or two before we started shooting this podcast, the Electoral Commission decides that we should uh, delay the elections on the basis of a report that couldn't find a single peer-reviewed study to show that elections spread COVID, that did have various submissions from scientists saying the delayed election is likely to be more dangerous because it's going to then take place during a peak, whereas the October election would have taken place during a trough. And on top of that, like submissions to say that 100 countries have had elections uh, during the plague. Scores of countries have done it in a proper way that respects uh, freedom and fairness and creates no extra lost life. The report itself concedes that Ghana, which is much poorer than South Africa, and Egypt, which is much less stable, have both managed to pull off free and fair elections without any vaccines and worse conditions than we did, without loss of life. That all notwithstanding, these guys say you have to push back the election. And here we are sitting in a country where literally most, I mean, most South Africans Rian's age have kind of missed half the votes that they could have voted in because of stupid race laws, wicked and stupid race laws. Like if anywhere was going to have, if any country was going to have a resounding don't screw with the constitution the constitution says the election has to happen by october don't deny us our, our vote don't delay our vote don't mess with our vote if anyone was going to be precious about the vote you'd think it'd be south africa where there's such glorification about the liberation project to give every adult the vote in fair free and regular elections and i think that we will get some enthusiasm for our campaign but at Although, the same time i don't I have, think it's I going have, to be that much because i don't think people connect all the dots i don't think people are that au fait yeah, with I, the science i don't think people are that au fait with the investment prospects of expropriation without compensation and custodianship I heard, intellectually I heard not so wise this, yeah. yeah i heard about a poll this morning that said that two-thirds of south africans are in favor of postponing the election I mean, and part of that is for sure based on the, the the fact they haven't thought it through, and they think that oh yeah, it definitely will go ahead in February, so it's not a big deal. Which which it won't. February will be worse if anything. It'll get delayed again. Government will be dissolved in between. It's going to be a nightmare. Anyway, Rian wants to say something. The proposition that I'm putting forward is just that I think that our elites push this kind of uh, worship of 
of do-nothing experience, often it just amounts to the experience of victimhood. And that unfortunately, most ordinary people who are actually hardworking, diligent, let's uh, take what we've got and make something out of it types, don't have the time to read all the stuff, no. think through all the stuff that we do. And so also end up forming bad opinions. Okay, Gabriel, just before you, you, you go on there, I think you guys are being a, a bit modest. So let's return to basics here. So, South Africa is a country where if ever there was a place in the world where black people could luxuriate in their victimhood and, and, and provide concrete examples of it, that is us. We started with yeah. uh, colonialism and then slavery and imperialism and, and gold mines and <clears throat> the, the whole panoply of things. We wind up with a situation in 2021 where black South Africans just done something that completely repudiates the core of the whole critical race theory, which is your Institute of Race Relations most recent poll, which found that, what, three, if I remember correctly, three, something like 3% of black South Africans rated racism, oppressive racism as, 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 as the most serious problem. Yeah. That in, it, in itself is, in, is an indication is, is that that poll is accurate is the vast majority of South Africans, black South Africans actually agree with us. It's like, what are their great cries for help? Give us jobs, give us crime-free society, give us schools with, that, that, that work, give us hospitals that work, all these things, etc. And they're not, by, by relegating racism to number 10 on, on, on the list. It's, number it's, 15. It's, it's, <laughs> I, I stand corrected, but I mean, the, the, the fact that, they, that, they, that, they, that they're willing to forego the luxury of standing there, unlike our politicians, they are willing to follow the luxury of saying, we victims give us to say, there are more, more urgent problems in their life. They, and it seems that's a significant majority. It seems to me that the, the great problem now for South Africa is to try and overcome this tendency to like be tribal in our, in our voting patterns. And That's what I'm saying though, Rian. I'm saying we've got to connect the dots. People have got the right values but there's an intellectual move to be made. And I see, dude, I see a lot of guys uh, from various walks of life. Uh, I mean, William Gumede is the one who I think has done it the most clearly, connecting the dots between the riots and the need to vote out the ANC and the need to vote out the ANC and the push to delay the election. He's written deeply into both of those steps saying you've got to connect these dots like this is this is a serious issue we need to have elections because we need to change the administrators and the lawmakers Moletsi and Becky is like another dude who who connects the dots between what the laws are and what the outcomes are that most people find frustrating right so most people find it frustrating that we don't have enough jobs and when we ask the question, would you rather have BEE or would you rather have a voucher-based system that decentralizes spending in order to improve hospital schools and so on? So you can you don't send your kid to that school where the teachers don't show up. You can send it to a low-cost private school. White people are in two minds. It's like 55-35. 35% of white people think more BEE would be better. Okay? Black people... It's like 5% think more BE would be better. So, so there's definitely a problem with like white guilt liberals screwing everything up. And many of them do, do still occupy important intellectual positions of authority, which get, and what do intellectuals do? 
They get in the way of connecting the dots. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying we've got the practical wisdom. Most people have the right values. Most people know how to implement those values in their narrow spheres of influence. But when it gets to the national stage, we need to, we don't focus. I don't think that we, we clearly haven't pulled off the trick of connecting the dots between the ANC, EWC, NHI, BE, go right. through and, all and, the acronyms you want. Part and of that is because the ANC, because the ANC has played an incredibly effective game, right? Of centralizing uh, themselves at the center of South African society and taking over so many institutions. I mean, that's what cater deployment was about, right? Putting their people yep. into the media, putting their people into academia, putting their people into business. And, you know, that it's paid dividends, huge dividends, which is, I think, at least one of the reasons why so many people are not able to make that intellectual connection because so much of the thinking class, so to speak, um, and I use that sort of slightly mockingly, uh, are there to make sure that you don't think. <laughs> Dude, so well put. And an ANC cater deployment is so good that they deployed a cater called Richard Maponya, who spoke out viciously against BE, was a huge fan of the Free Market Foundation, which he led. And they waited until he died, and then they claimed that he was a cater who liked everything <laughs> that they stood for. <laughs> yeah, it's, I, I like the point you just made. Is it's it's the, the apathy and acquiescence. No, the, the leading role of, of, of Watson perpetuating the, the, the problems associated with CRT. Uh, last night, for instance, I watched a th three-part documentary about uh, Brett Weinstein, a sort of centrist intellectual, thoughtful guy who was drummed out of a, his teaching job at Evergreen College in Washington State by a coalition of uh, worker, gender activists, and, and, and race, race activists. It's, I can, cannot rec recommend it too highly, but one of the leitmotifs that r runs through this is, first of all, you, you, you get... Whites like Carl Niehaus comes to mind. Um, whites who are eager to aggrandize themselves and get ahead in life and make make money by stabbing fellow whites in the back. And then there's a second there's a second category of, of, of people who are ashamed and humiliated, and then all they want to do is grovel. You can you, you can you can see them like trying to figure out a, a way of getting this, and they lack the courage and principle to stand up and say, "I'm sorry." This is just rubbish. This is nonsense. It's like you guys think that you can intimidate me. You won't. I will not take the knee. I mean, this is not because they're oppressing blacks. It's because they're being forced to agree that they must, every year, every teacher in this college must write a confessional about his evil, secret racist thoughts and his evil, sort of inadvertently racist actions and apologize to them and turn them and undertake to get better. And the scenes in this documentary which take place, it's exactly like Mao's cult cultural revolution. Is that they're picking on, on, on these whites who repeatedly don't have the gumption to stand up. The easiest thing to say, yes, of course, it's like we, we agree with you. And will you accept my apology? Whereas, whereas ideally, like, you should be doing more of what of, of, of what you guys at, at the at the IRR do, which is, uh, is, is to stand up and say, let's not re-examine this from the from first principles and maybe make it better by not simply acquiescing. Okay, Rian, I want to uh, Rian once called me Colonel Pilikis when I was uh, singing in the background to his first album. Corporal. Going, Corporal. Corporal. Oh, yes, I was... <laughs> Sorry, I was so inflating my rank now. <laughs> it was worse than that. Rihanna, when I ask a real, I was, I was fifty, and uh, and I must say, I uh, Rian took me to the French ambassador's house for the New Year's Eve party, and I saw 
magnificent and beautiful things that night. Wasn't, wasn't that great? <laughs> I was 15, yeah. dude. I was so stoked. <laughs> the, the ambassador and I walking arm in arm. It's like me propping up because we were so extremely drunk on the fine wines and champagnes provided by the French taxpayer. And then he eventually sort of uh, he killed over and fell on his back in the lavender garden, laughing his head yes. off. Wasn't he a great no, man? He was, he was fab. Did he would he would put like the the best like vodka, cognac or whatever, and then a bit of champagne, and then in a in a crystal tumbler, and then smash it down, and then suddenly it turns into fizz, and you just breathe it in. And as a teenager, I got properly drunk very quickly, and then hung out with. Oh, wait, hold on, and, hold on, hold on. I need to interject here. So you uh, think Gabriel have accused me in the past of being from a family of aristocrats, and in a certain sense, that's <laughs> completely true, right? Because I'm from a family that's been in politics forever, right? I have never even imagined going to a French ambassador's party <laughs> to no, be fed champagne like, and wines. <laughs> and then jump in a pool full of like naked, beautiful French ladies and, and see them rock and roll. Was, I thought it was great. Anyway, the point is that I want to ask like a I, I want to ask a cheeky bratty question, Ryan, which is that. I, I read my Trader's Heart when I was 15 or so, four, I was 13, and I it really arrested me. And there was a moment where you switched from the first person to the second person, where you said you find yourself in this situation. And I was sitting in my bedroom, which faced over a very dodgy street in Yeovil, and where I'd seen an MP march past, and I'd seen people try and crawl in to do terrible things, and I got nervous, and then... There's a description of crime, and and I really did feel like my I could feel my heart pumping in my chest by a vivid and real account because this is based on your work as a as a criminal investigator of of what it's like to be terrified by someone coming in, and then I reread I've, I've reread your book a couple of times, but I, I remember rereading it on a flight to Moscow, and I thought. With the with the benefit of hindsight, that in a way it reads like the ultimate, the original story of of a white woke, white guilt kind of dude evolving into something else. Uh, as far as I can recall, your first sort of public writing was the line. Say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, which you, you and some friends went and smoked a joint and somewhere in Emerentia around the corner here, you spray painted that on the wall. Barry Herzog Avenue. Barry Herzog Avenue, it's just yeah. here. And so you started out as like a just another like, you know, team black kind of um, champion. And you fought with your family and your family had their own fights and your father's got an interesting story. But you kind of started out a little bit with this sort of beautiful idea and then I think lived through some hard things and I think also with great empathy came to see what other people were living through that was even harder and came to see that this this team affiliation, this this ideological commitment, uh, whether it's socialist, whether it's race nationalist, that 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 the consequences are are dire, and so you and so you evolved, but in a way, my traitor's heart is an apology 
right? This is the question I'm putting, this is the statement I'm putting to you to respond to. In a way, those white guys who, put it another way, I, Adrian Besson, who's the editor of the largest news publication in the country, a week or two after he was made editor of News 24, said that there should be no uh, new appointments of white CEOs. You should have black people being promoted. And, and Franz Krenier, our boss, wrote him, you know, dude, but if you really believe that you should quit and have a black person replace you. And, and there the thought is that every, like, white guy in a way wants to be F.W. de Klerk. You know, sets something so, so that you can be the guy who apologizes, says it's very wrong, and you get replaced by Mandela. There's a kind of, uh, you, Ria, de Klerk, there are white guys who actually grew up in a universe that was so screwed up, so ugly, and so defined by race that that it that it was humane and intelligent and responsible to kind of lash yourself, as you do in your book. You describe your childhood as being one that has some problems with prejudice. And then to evolve from that and then to kind of make room for for broader humanity. And when I see these, these white professors in America today um, groveling and apologizing, I think in a way they're trying to emulate the journey that you depicted in My Trader's Heart. They're trying to walk in your footsteps in the way that Adrian Besson in a way was trying to walk in de Klerk's footsteps, not with the conviction that you had, but there does seem to be some resonance in the sentiment. And maybe that's a, yeah, a corporal pilikis thing to say, because in a way I'm trying to yoke you in uh, to the same group mm, that okay. you've just described in rather disparaging terms. So I put it to you, Rian, that you are the original white apologist. What do you say? <laughs> um, yes, that's exactly how... A lot of Afrikaners regard me at that. I, didn't, I, did, I seem to have some odd ideas that agreed with them, resonated with them, but generally they, they thought that I was a feyandergesint, as they say. Um, let, me, let me just address that by saying, it's like, you know, I, I left South Africa on the 9th of May in 1977, dodging the draft, and when I landed in London, if you'd met me on the day, on that day, as I would have introduced myself as a as a, a noble, just white man, too noble and too principled to carry a gun for apartheid, and having having done so, it's like my very first port of call in London was not a pawn shop, so I could look at banned magazines like Playboy, and it was not to go and take drugs and listen to rock and roll. I went to a left wing bookshop so I could buy all the books that I'd been forbidden to read, etc. <laughs> After nine years, eight, eight nine years. <laughs> in the outside world, I, I, I came back and, and, and as, with a really lucrative book contract in my, in my pockets to stab fellow whites in the back. And as I got off the plane, it's like I, I realized something that I'd never known prior to that point. South Africa actually was an African country that they, and that our destiny was to, Okay, the, the destiny of whites in this place was like certainly un uncertain, and the single most important question that, that, that faced us was not how to resolve apartheid, because that was the late 80s already, and apartheid was clearly on, on a way out. It was questions of how, how to avoid what had happened elsewhere in Africa. 
Having had this insight, I continue to pretend to be an orthodox white white liberal and to to betray Afrikaners and to betray white South Africa with my my, my every utterance. And eventually came to a point where I couldn't live with myself. It was actually happened in Easter 1986. In Easter 1986, something really horrible happened. There was a young comrades wearing UDF T-shirts um, in orgy of witch burning, burnt 30, depending on whose county, 30 to 40 mostly elderly women alive in, in the northern mm -hmm. province, in the Limpopo province. And on, on that day, the, the, the New York Times, which was very interested in South Africa at that stage, they had a long and very elegantly written piece about the investiture of Bishop Arch, Archbishop Tutu as, as the leader of the, of the Anglican Church in South Africa. And below that, they had a little headline on a, on a, a brocky that was about, about two inches long. And the headline had said, um, two die overnight. And this is, this is two of the sort of deaths that the New York Times has liked to report. And it's of, it's of two sort of black insurrections who'd, who'd been throwing stones at police and been shot. And underneath that, unheralded by any headline, this, 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 this single paragraph about the discovery of the charred remains of these little old ladies being used, burnt because they'd been accused, burnt alive because they'd been accused of using witchcraft to retard the struggle. And I look at this and I said, I wasn't, I was in America at that stage and I said, this is the sort of thing that detonates in, in the subconscious of white South Africans and causes all sorts of primordial fears to well, well us up and bring out the, the possibly the very worst in South Africa. And I was associated with people like the New York Times who could not face this, that they couldn't face it. They, so I resolved to write a book, which I often thought I was working on it. It was an act that I wanted to plant in the brain. You choose to judge us. This is what it looks like from inside my brain. <laughs> but apologetic, yeah, I, I am. It's like, especially one of the worst things that happened to me in my life was to, on the, on the week that Nelson Mandela was released from prison, I go on a book tour in America. And usually, like the people that interview you for CNN, they've never even read the book, and they and they, and they, they you know they just said this guy's against against departed, and then they invited me once again to like sort of betray white South Africa and to out of the usual attitudes, which I could do at that stage with a degree of conviction because their apartheid was stupid and vicious. It needlessly insulted and oppressed a lot of people, and made them made them miserable. Um. What I, couldn't, what I couldn't do at that stage was talk about the things that were really important in the book. The only people, I got the impression, the only people really understood that book were like sort of violent, especially in, in Britain, Communist Party members, who said this is a right-wing book written from a left-wing point of view, a feigned left-wing point of view. And that was yeah. <laughs> that is the accusation that you're entitled to, to level against me, and it's true. But it's also at the same time, I, I couldn't explain to my father. That my father was, uh, his name was Ati Milan. He was a much better man than me. He was moral and thoughtful and he didn't used to drink to excess or do any of the bad things that I do. He was, he was, he was a good human being. He was also a nationalist. He went to Stellenbosch University in 1939 and joined the party and walked in lockstep his, his entire life and always thought that it was like a more or less right thing, right thing to do until the day his life was destroyed by a headline in Freya Wirkblatt that said funny SRP, which is about Flockplatz. And after that, by the time he died, he was more left-wing than me. But anyway, after this book came out, it was full of like invidious judgments of, of Afrikaners. Mm. I said, this is the best I can do for you, is to place you in context. And he said, I don't accept that. <laughs> mm. So that's the... There. 
Yeah, I hear you, man. And and I think, look, I I think that the the story of the X Man is 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 kind of the greatest. It's it's such a good story. Basically, you know, to 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 bastardize it, the idea is that you have this person in KZN who is crawling into white people's homes in the middle of the night and uh, axing their, chopping their heads off, killing them in their beds. And it's terrifying and all kinds of rumors are going around about why he's doing this. And then miraculously he's caught and he kind of makes this confession. And it seems like, you know, the first version of it is like this sort of terrifying white person's point of view. The second version is this uh, political expression of low-level terrorism, low-level in the sense of the technology and the scale, but extremely intense in terms of the victims. Um, that 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 whiteness is terrible, and and this is the only way that one can really show. This is the only way that one can truly express how terrible it is. But then there's this third version, which completely takes one by surprise, according to which. This guy's life, Sam, ooh, I can't remember, because um, I've had whiskey. Simon Mpongose. Yes, Simon Mpongose. He, he is, I mean, I kind of feel terrible for anyone who hasn't read the book, but don't worry, it's so well told that you'll, you'll, you'll get the blow if you read it yourself. But it turns out that he is from a family that has long been disgraced by an allegation probably true of incest up the line. And that within their community, this is like just about the worst thing that you can do and have. And so this, this fact of within his family and his community and his neighborhood, him being a total reject is part of what sets him on the course uh, that ultimately leads to this conclusion. And his final cry uh, speaks to that. And it's, it's sort of harrowing in a way that um, few things get to be. And I, and I think that that's a, it's a story about, it's a story about context. It's a story about the, the context not being one well, thing. If, if I may, I initially went to Mpangani to research that story because it seemed to be a, a parable that confirmed the accuracy of all the central tenets of critical race theory, that here was a man who had been born into absolute poverty in the aftermath of colonialism, and his life had been blighted by horrible, by in, in, in enormous hardships, and eventually resorted to crime, went to, went, went to, went to prison, in prison was severely assaulted by, and tormented and tortured by by the warders and by, anyway, it was like, it's, it's, the, it's the perfect, parable. perfect parable. And it was, but then, then it turned out, and this, apartheid breeds a monster. This is yeah. But there was, then there was, but then when I actually ventured into bus stop four outside Ishawi, where his, his family came from, there was this curious, like some Tennessee people said, "No, you, you misunderstood it." There was this like secret in his family, which was that there was this rumor of incest. And if you are the product of incest in Zulu society, it's like you are deemed to be an offense to the ancestors and you, among other things, it'd be difficult for you <laughs> to win acceptance or to get married or to live a normal life, as I dimly understand it today. And there, once again, people could say that I'm, I, 
uh, romanticizing the other and so forth. But it seems, you know, that there, there's this idea, I was, I was having a discussion the other day on South Africa about artificial insemination, about men donating sperm. And then suddenly, this is on SAFM, and suddenly the, the, the lines right up with, the, the, the phone lines light up with all these African guys who are suddenly realize what they're getting after is that is is to do this to ejaculate into a test tube, and then to artificially your semen artificially impregnates impregnates a woman that you don't even know, and you might even be white or whatever the case is, that this is going to cause turmoil in the spirit world, and this is like you know this is like this is South Africa in 2021. These these are these are people by virtue of owning cell phones and the English that they spoke. They were sophisticated. They were members of the middle class, and this was. Well, it's true, as, as I said in that book, is you know, in South Africa, we have these parallel kingdoms of consciousness that overlap and intersect in, in, in many extraordinary ways. But there is this powerful one that has to do with African religion and its, uh, its survival and what it means to people. I think it's. I generally tend to mistrust and dislike white people who taken upon themselves the right to pontificate about, about these things, as, as, as I've just done. But I think it is a. It's a it is a consideration. It is a. It's, I mean, it's a reality that we. And and what it does look. I mean, I think you know. I want to push back a little bit against your 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 uh, denigration of those who want to pontificate. I think what it does is part of the reason to denigrate it is that there's a kind of um, impulse to romanticize the other, as it were, in the direction of turning people into units of experience and depriving people of agency. And that is a classic romantic idea from Wordsworth's time. But there is a very serious project, which is to understand people where they are, to understand the society that you're in, and to understand the challenges that it faces and try and draw practical conclusions about what can best be done given where you are. And that project is rejected to court a priori, by critical race theorists who say, look, here's the problem. We know what the problem is. The problem is centuries of colonialism, a uh, century of apartheid in South Africa's case, and the legacies that come thereafter. And if you start talking about, well, if you start at two and you want to make it to eight, that's better than starting at 100 and making it to 108 uh, because you've, you're turning little into more rather than kind of sitting on your talents. You are caught up in a Protestant work ethic, fascist, neo-ideology. What really matters is one thing and one thing only. And this plays out very directly. And I've had this experience by going to land court uh, reviews to the Grand Ambizos in Cape Town and in Pretoria, where the best academics in the country supposedly got together to talk with the best politicians. And whenever tribal authorities, tradition and anything of the kind was brought up, the line was one and the same. If there's bad consequences here, it's because of apartheid's role in Bantustan balkanization. It's the colonialists who established the chiefs before the colonials. There was no kind of misogyny. There was perfect material surplus. There was wonderful respect. There was nothing. There were no social ills. This was a Garden of Eden, and then and then white people arrived and they established. Uh, traditions and religions and cultures and so on. There was no Zulu culture as distinct from Kosa, Pedi or Swati or Twana. It was all it was all black harmony and then things kind of changed. 
uh, as a result of an introduction of whiteness. And and on that basis, I think a lot of people stay mute. And on and on that same basis, I put back against the denigration of anyone who wants to venture where facts may lead. And sometimes they find that the problem in a particular person's life is 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 in part, in serious part, something that is other than 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 white oppression. That white oppression becomes part of the story, but that it's not the seed. And I think that that is an important part of the project. In a way, Simon's story is an inversion chronologically of South Africa's story, which is to say his story starts out with uh, a pain that has nothing to do with racism, and then it gets ramified and worsened by the racist oppression that he suffers at the hands of the apartheid police state, and that leads to this devastating conclusion where he's hanged. South Africa's story in the last, in our generations, your lifetime and mine, is kind of the other way around. It's like apartheid clearly was this imposed this race-based cost on so many people's lives, and now something else is imposing a cost. But in both situations, it's the fixation on the race-based story, the thought that this is the only story to tell that gets in the way of both seeing the humanity, as in the case of Simon, who's a dead guy, and there's nothing you can do about that, and in terms of the practical side of what you can actually do to make South Africa a great country, finally, for once, uh, help people to reach their full potential. What seems to hold us back is that intellectually we resign the space of cost-benefit analysis and particularly of solutions-oriented thinking to those who say, if you see a problem, it must be racism, and if you want to find a solution, it must be on the same basis. So that's part of the reason that I think that story is um, telling and part of the reason that I think it, 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 it was a hot... It strikes one as like... Um, an uncomfortable, what is Al Gore's phrase? Uh, an inconvenient truth. More, more than at any time in South Africa's history, in, in the in the dying embers of apartheid, for someone to write, uh, for someone to spend like a quarter of his book kind of talking about a story where ultimately racism doesn't turn out to be the only problem, strikes me as, as the flip side of this, uh, you know, uh, white apologist or or right, you know, uh, capitalist masquerading as a communist kind of thing. But my last question to you, Rian, is somehow the sequence often seems to go like this. If people start out in South Africa in particular, but I see this a lot in America too. If people start out with some kinds of white supremacist or anti-black prejudice, just kind of things that they're picking up from the environment in an unconscious way as small children... They get over that by inverting the table but keeping the same structure. So they're going, they go from thinking like white should be in charge and you should forgive them if they make some mistakes because ultimately they're better to thinking black people should be in charge and if they make some mistakes, you should forgive them because ultimately they should be better. And likewise, in terms of one's view on the role of the state, there seems to be this, this, this shift from thinking the government should do everything in order to benefit these people to the government should do everything in order to benefit those people. And you seem to have made neither of those moves or rather moved through both of those moves 
to come to a position where you seem to think that, look, the government shouldn't be doing everything. Uh, you know, let meritocracy reign. Some people will come out with different outcomes. And in terms of race, like, let's not let's not uh, make special allowances for this one or that one. Let's 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 see the honor in hard work and the shame in child abuse, no matter who the perpetrator is. What do you think it is that like pushed you through from the the kind of short-winded jump from socialism for whites to socialism for blacks or uh, you know, white burden supremacy to black victimhood CRT identity stuff? All the way to to where you seem to be. Why didn't Why didn't you get stuck in the mud like 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 so many, especially of your generation? So many of the journalists that I know you know well who who. <laughs> it was a it was a really good uh, article, and and by really good I mean good at illustrating this point. Um, article in the Daily Maverick the other day. Uh, someone who basically said that white people mustn't be outraged by looting because you're all a bunch of privileged idiots who don't understand uh, that black people do things differently. It was the most racist yeah, garbage no. I've ever seen in my it life. It was terribly racist, but she was trying, yeah, anti-racist. Right, she was exactly, yeah, she, exactly. She was, she was doing that exact thing. Well, Gabriel, to the extent there was a, there was there was a question in, in, in there. It's like it's, it's, I've, I've become quite reactionary in my dotage. But I still, if you scratch me, there's still a somewhere just beneath the surface. There's still this fucking useless, sentimental white liberal lurking that the, where I keep on thinking it's it's so easy to imagine a better future in South Africa, better for me. But that's not the single most important thing. Better for everyone, and if it's better, for, there is no security and there's no position of safety or even just psychic equilibrium for me, so long as I find it difficult to eat in front of people who are hungry. I don't like living in a society where there are beggars stand at my gate asking for food. So if I turn them away, I feel shit, and if, and if I eat them, I feel worse. And, and so it's so easy to imagine just like small adjustments of our situation that would lead to huge improvements. And one of them would be to, let, let me invoke Thomas Sowell, who's work I started reading in the early 1980s, his, his first or second book, The Economics and Politics of Race, it was a huge revelation for me as a, as a gormless leftist from Wits University. <laughs> he, said, he said, I'm not apologizing for the, history, for the history of this country, I'm not even addressing it. He said, the victims and villains of history are beyond our reach. And all we can do now is set in motion processes that achieve the de desired end for my people, for black people. He said, and then he went on with this, with this, this thing about is the victimhood was really dangerous and what was, it was more important that blacks couldn't possibly, American blacks couldn't lose sight of, social, of various social pathologies that had infected their communities. And it was very dangerous for them to abandon themselves to ideas of victimhood. In other words, it was a variant of the old Victorian idea of putting up your socks and, 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 and getting on with the job. In a way, my life is, my politics have not improved have not progressed very much beyond that, that, that purpose. In fact, I'm very sorry to say that the more dyspeptic and despairing and cynical side of, of my view of the world has just been horribly confirmed by the ANC, for which I suppose I should thank them. They could have mm. so humiliated me with my apprehensions of what was like liable to happen in South Africa. Instead, 
for whatever it's worth. You have the <laughs> curse of being right. No God. And I still, I really, I really think that uh, critical race theories and its sort of allied philosophy in, in South Africa are, are a threat not to me, but to black people themselves. I think that's the point that I was trying to make in this article that we've discussed around, is I, I, I really think that, uh, that black interests would be better served by something else, by discarding those ideas. And Can I leave it at that? Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll just say a uh, nice phrase for that is the teleological paradox, right? Telos is this ancient Greek word for a goal or an aim, and it just turns out if your goal or aim is specifically and focusedly and always just to uplift, for example, one race group uh, by handouts and quotas and patronage networks and so on, then much like in life. If you if you just spend all your time shooting for happiness, you're guaranteed misery. So too for the broader society. If you just shoot for the happiness in this short-sighted, short-circuited way, you you engender misery exactly for those people that you that you propose to uplift. And that the 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 the, the, the much better route is to, as my old grand used to say, uh, you know, shoot for the moon. And uh, land up amongst the stars. I loved your grand. She was a very admirable person. All the years she was a goodie. after her blind husband, she was very courageous, and she was never sorry for herself ever. Never. Amen, so, man. Amen. I raise your glass. I raise my glass. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm tempted now to open up a whole nother. Uh, side front here, but I won't because we're already over an hour and a half. Um, so yeah, let us say thanks, Rian, for coming on. Um, it was really great to to hear from you, and uh, I'm glad that we finally got you on on our show. Um, and at this part of the podcast, we usually do recommendations of various things. Um, so I'm going to recommend uh, Edmund Burke's Reflections on the Revolution in France. Mm. Um, which I'm, which I've been reading bits of for ages, but I've once again started to go back into it from the beginning because I decided that I've been reading it too disjointedly, and uh, it's yeah, it's great. It's especially when one is living through a revolutionary age, which I think we are. Um, my good, my recommendation is so on point with Nick. We are, I think, in a similar space of of really hating America since the insurrection. <laughs> And a lot of the campaign last year. I've loved this country and defended it for so many years against naysayers from the left and the right. And I just gave up and thought, burn them all. Um, but my 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 heart is warming again to the American project. And for me, that's come through the channel of a TV series called John Adams, which a lot of Americans watch around Thanksgiving. It's kind of a, a, a well-cast reenactment of the founding of America, George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams. Uh, where, where can we no, find it? Ha Alexander Hamilton. So I've been bootlegging it, which is uh, about as illegal as the vodka that I'm drinking right now. I won't say any more, <laughs> but, but it is available on all 
uh, the the official channels uh, that the internet provides, and it's it's really a masterpiece. I mean, it's like, yeah, I, I went to three American Thanksgivings and.